Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. And welcome to our two guests. I'll start with Dan Glazier, Executive Director and General Counsel of Legal Services of Eastern Missouri. Hi, Dan. Hi, Eric. Hi, Tim. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Happy to be here. We're here also with Karen Warren. She's the Associate Director of Outreach and Administration. Hello, Karen. Hi, Eric, and hi, Tim. Thanks for having us. How are you doing today, Karen? I'm doing well, thanks. We're happy to have you guys on. We want to provide a platform for legal services and give you guys a chance to explain everything you do in any way that any other lawyers in the community can help. And as you too know, this is a nationally syndicated podcast, but the topic is not just a St. Louis topic, right? because according to the numbers I just saw last night, there's legal services offices in 850 cities across the United States. Is that about the right number? There are 132 legal aides in the country, different offices, and every single county, this is the key fact, Every county in the United States has a legal aid office that services that county. And each of these offices provides comparable services and I assume faces similar challenges to getting the job done. I assume it's somewhat universal or are there differences? No, I would say the challenges that legal aids face in general are pretty much universal. There may be some differences in the areas of law in which we each practice because that's based on what legal needs are identified in our client population. But for the most part, our challenges are all the same, which is trying to help individuals living with low income have access to the legal system for civil legal issues and having the challenge of having enough staff to meet those needs as well as financial resources. Yeah. In the legal services community, they talk about something called the justice gap and the justice gap is very real. The justice gap is the need far exceeds the resources and the gap between the need for quality, civil, legal aid representation as compared to the resources that we have, that's our gap. And it's a very meaningful one. It's kind of inverse to the wealth gap, right? The people who are most in need of good legal services are those who are least able to afford it. Yeah, that's true. Nationally, really, the justice gap that Dan is mentioning, about 80% of persons living with low income or limited income, they do not have the ability to have their civil legal needs met. So that's 80% at a national level. When I think about the work that you do, I have to remember, what would it be like if my credit card is maxed out, I have $500 in my bank and I needed to pay my utility bills. I don't know what to do because I'm calling lawyers one after another and they're all saying, I'm sorry, but I don't have the bandwidth to help you for free. Well, and often the problem is being wrongfully evicted. And it's, you don't know where you're going to sleep the next day. Yeah. Yeah. The close to 100 staff that we have in around the country see every day life and death issues. We represent folks to get access to health care. That's life and death. It can be. We represent folks to get access to food stamps so they're not hungry, right? We represent folks who are survivors of domestic violence. That's life-threatening. And of course, Tim, you mentioned, you know, wrongful evictions or being out on the street. It's very cold in St. Louis today. Imagine being out on the street. 
with no place to go. And if it's not cold, it's too hot. Tell me what your scope of services is with regard to civil versus criminal. Do you handle any criminal work at all? We don't. We do not handle any criminal matters at all. We have specific restrictions on certain areas of the law in which we can practice, and that's one of them. So no criminal matters. Our civil practice is, again, based on the the legal needs presented by our community. So as Dan indicated, we practice in the area of health care, helping people get access to health care, getting access to public benefits like food stamps and child care assistance. We handle consumer legal issues, housing issues. And as Tim mentioned, one of the main priorities of area that we're working on in housing right now is eviction defense work. We do advocacy on behalf of children with special needs in the education setting. So getting them access to the supported services they need in a learning environment so they can succeed. We have a wonderful program that's been around for about the last three years, I believe, the Neighborhood Vacancy Initiative Program, which helps address the issue of abandoned properties in the city of St. Louis. And that work is spreading to St. Louis County. So that gives you an example of some of the areas where we're active in helping people with legal needs. So, you know, Dan, as the executive director and general counsel and Karen as the associate director for outreach and administration, can you kind of explain to the listeners what each of your day-to-day role involves and then how legal services is structured? Do you have a group of attorneys that focus on one particular area? Does everybody kind of dip their foot in the water of everything? So for me, one of my primary roles is supervising and managing our central intake unit. And that's where we screen prospective clients for eligibility for our services. And that's a challenging role, as you can imagine, because of the justice gap. Requests for services far exceeds what we're able to do. We have a very high call volume for requests for assistance. Another priority role for me is coordinating our outreach efforts so that the community knows about our services and how to access them. And to answer your question, Tim, we do have lawyers that focus on specific areas. So we have a housing law program, consumer law program. Children's Legal Alliance does the educational advocacy. We have an immigration law program, our neighborhood vacancy initiative. We also have another program that helps low-income entrepreneurs who want to start their own business, which is called the Micro Enterprise Program. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. So there's a definite structure and we each have a special focus. But by the same token, our outline offices, Union and Hannibal's, they tend to have a more generalist practice because they're in rural areas. And so there's a variety of civil legal needs. And so those attorneys handle those. Yeah, we like to say we want to help our clients to thrive and not just survive. But what we are talking about in many instances are survival services, right? You know, as Karen said, access to food, access to shelter, all right, access to safety. These are all survival issues. And then there are those issues that are foundational issues that allow our folks to thrive. Education. We're very proud of the work that we're doing for our kids to help them get the educational services that they're entitled to. There's many kids with special needs and they need an advocate. They need someone to speak up for them, to make sure they get the services that will allow them to thrive. And we do that in our Children's Legal Alliance program, in our Education Justice program. So it's survival, it's survive, it's thrive. And then, as Karen mentioned, and this is something relatively new, we help our clients to strive, okay? Our micro-enterprise program, we help 
And the folks come in with the ideas. They have these ideas to start a business, the American dream, right? That's what they want to do, like we all do. And we help them with the help of volunteer lawyers to do the legal work so that their ideas, their inspiration of things they want to do can come to fruition, can happen. And so that's it. Survive, thrive, and strive. That's what we try to uh, try to do at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri. Karen, could you tell us more about your intake? Are there metrics you can offer about numbers of calls you get in a year and how many cases you can actually handle? What percentage you have to turn away even though you don't want to just because of limited resource? Yeah, I will say, and unfortunately, I don't have that figure right in front of me, but I can go from the top of my head and tell you that in the last year, in 2020, in 2021 rather, we had around 19,000 to 20,000 calls overall for the whole year. Generally speaking, we looked at numbers recently and we saw that we unfortunately had to turn away about 77% of the people who sought our help for assistance. I should qualify by saying for many people, legal aid is, we're it. I mean, they don't have a hope of trying to find a private attorney that can represent them or have funds. So a lot of people call us with issues that unfortunately are things that we would not be able to handle because of the priorities that we've set. Some people, they might have a dispute with their neighbor. It could be like the neighbor's dog got into their yard. We do get these kind of calls and we try to be helpful as much as we can. But that's generally what we're looking at. I will tell you one figure that to me was startling. In January of this year, we have a special line set up for people who have housing issues, landlord tenant issues. In the month of January, we had 799 calls to that line. That is an exact figure. And it's having the staff to be able to process those calls because each one of those people needs a call back and they have a right to be able to know whether it's something we can help with or if not, where else could we send them for some type of support or service? We've been doing this as a legal services entity for 66, going on 66 years now. But the last two years, of course, have created a unique challenge. You know, if you think about it, how do we all feel during this pandemic? unbelievably vulnerable. Everybody, right? Well, who we represent each and every day are the most vulnerable in our society. So imagine what it was like for the most vulnerable in our society to face such a vulnerable circumstance like a pandemic. Have you noticed different kinds of calls or different percentages of types of challenges during the pandemic? I would say that the challenges are, you know, one, what I mentioned in terms of the housing situation, because for many of our clients, they are the working poor. They're in hourly wage jobs that were directly impacted by the pandemic. So say you were a restaurant worker and all of a sudden you don't have a restaurant job to go to and you're trying to fight to get unemployment benefits. So with the lack of funds, you're not able to pay your rent. You can't pay your utility bills. To the eviction moratorium not were people still getting wrongfully evicted even though we had the moratorium and you're still dealing with it or did the calls go up or down i think it's a combination of things the people we serve it's being educated on the eviction moratorium and how to to utilize that process how to complete a declaration so we specifically did outreach around that to educate our client community because slumlords will still try to kick them out. right and then we still you know some people still had the challenge of people doing illegal evictions which can come in many forms in terms of one thing that we're seeing now is illegal evictions through utility shutoffs, 
just shutting off the utilities so people have no access to basic services like gas or heat and trying to force someone out of a unit. So that's one of the types of evictions we see or illegally just locking somebody out, saying if you're not out by six o'clock on whatever date, hypothetically speaking, I'm going to change the locks on this or somebody leaving and going to work, which has happened to some of our clients and coming back and finding that they have no access to a unit that they've been paying rent on. They may have been behind, but those landlords are not following the proper judicial process. And then courthouses were not open. So to appear, you need internet. Correct. And they probably don't have it. And that's another element. The digital divide is very, very real. And that was exacerbated so much during the pandemic. You know, our clients do not have access to the tools that they need to navigate in the digital world. Were you involved in the problem with school shut down? They tell you to go online. People don't have internet at home. Do you play a role in that Absolutely. Issue? Our advocates, our education advocates, job one was making sure that the kids had access because all of a sudden, what was the schoolhouse? Your tablet. Right. Right? And frankly, and I won't ne necessarily name names right now, but we had some school districts that tried to charge money for the kids to get access to these lifelines, these educational lifelines. That's where advocacy comes in. And that's what we did. You know, we let these districts know that that kind of lack of access is illegal. Eventually uh, they came around, but it's a constant challenge. I want to circle back for a minute about the question about the eviction moratorium. And this is something that one of my intake staff and I dealt with directly was a woman who knew about the eviction moratorium, but didn't have the technology to be able to go online and complete a form or get that ready. And we actually were speaking to her on the phone on the day that she was being evicted, where, you know, the sheriff deputy is there to put her out. And, you know, we were trying to advocate on her behalf with that particular sheriff's department to like, could you give us a minute? We can try to drive to her house. I mean, I was working remotely. That has stuck with me throughout the pandemic that many people were faced with that kind of circumstance. Unfortunately, she got evicted. He said, I'm here. If she would have had the form ready, then I wouldn't do it. But we could not get yeah. them to give us more time. You just wonder, like, why, buddy? Yeah. Like, why? You know we can get the form Phil, that. Why are you doing this? Everybody's having a hard time right now, but you're doing this to somebody who's like especially vulnerable. Yeah. It bothers me. Things that are mohills to people with means become mountains for our clients. And it's a cascading mountain because, you know, if you have a, a, a bill, okay, that you weren't able to pay and you get sued and you have to go to court, you may have to take off work to go to court. And if you take off work, you might get fired. And if you might get fired, you very possibly could lose your housing. And if you lose your housing, you could lose your kids or you can't pay a fine because you lose your job. And then you get held in contempt and then you go to jail and then you lose your kids and it's just snowball. Right. People say, well, back in the Dickens days, there were debtor prisons. Well, you know what? It still exists. You know, it's an economic imprisonment. Let's talk about how people can help. How many volunteer attorneys do you have that don't work at legal services, but 
help out on a regular or semi-regular basis? And how much of a difference would it make if you could get a lot more? It's a wonderful part of our partnership to try to make a difference. You know, we have the 40 lawyers in our 21 county area that we serve. Those are our staff. But, you know, we've already talked about the justice gap and the great need. So the more skilled hands on deck, the better for our clients. So right now we have a list of, you know, over 400 volunteer lawyers in the greater St. Louis area. But understandably, you know, some can devote, you know, more time than others. Maybe um, one case a year and others. Yeah, but you know what? That helps. Yeah. yeah. That helps. That's you know, one person's life who you might be changing. That's right. No, that's right. Because every case that you take, you have a chance of altering a person's life. And for I think the good. one of the barriers, Dan, is, you know, as attorneys, we think I do what I do and I only know how to do what I do. If I tried to help you, like I wouldn't know what I'm doing. I would just screw it up. How do you help people? to be able to learn how to do what you need them to do so that they might think that barrier doesn't exist. Well, number one, our staff, you know, gets it that a volunteer lawyer reaching out with a question is extraordinarily high priority because we are there for you, the volunteer lawyer. We are there for them because we know they're there, you're there for our clients. So you get, you know, our expertise. There's a tendency to think when you're getting a free lawyer. And by the way, I think we need to make it clear that if you are income eligible for our services, which is a percentage of the poverty rate in our community, you get a free attorney. You get us at no cost. And sometimes people think, you know, you get what you pay for. All right. A free lawyer. Oh, man. You know, what's that going to be? Well, I'm going to say no brag, just fact. But may we say this? Okay. The reality is we at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri and the legal aid programs all across the country. All right. We are the poverty law experts. So the reality is for the circumstance, the situation you are facing, you're getting the experts, all right? Now, when I say we're the poverty law experts, I also preface it by saying there's not an enormous amount of competition for that title, okay? <laughs> but it's us. And we have great pride in the quality of people that we are working for us because you have to have the skill, you have to have the ability to relate to people, and you have to have the passion to do this work. That was absolutely what I was going to say next, is that you have to have the passion for this work. You have to have the passion for the clients that we serve. And, you know, I guess I will venture and speak for Dan and myself by saying that's what's kept us in this line of work for so long. And Tim, to answer your question about volunteer attorneys, we're absolutely there for them. We do offer trainings on substantive areas where a lawyer may not be familiar. You don't just say, oh, you want to help. Here's five eviction cases. Good luck. Thanks. Bye. Right. We don't do that. We absolutely don't <laughs> yeah. do that. I can remember a fond memory is working with one of our volunteer attorneys years ago, back when I managed our public benefits program, who agreed to take on a social security case. And he had never handled anything like that. And we were right there. I and the public benefits specialist were right there to walk him through like all of the steps. And he was able to handle that case, you know, with our support. And I think it was a rewarding experience for all three of us because we got a chance to see him dive into an area that he wasn't familiar with. And we had the satisfaction of knowing that we had somebody great 
to help one of our clients. So it is, it's a really great beneficial relationship all around, I think. There are lawyers that try cases and then there are transactional lawyers, right? They never leave their office. Never leave their office. So because of all the help that we offer our volunteers, a transactional lawyer can, with help, do that kind of work, do courtroom work, all right? But in the last, really, seven years or so, when we set up our micro-enterprise program, where we help low-income entrepreneurs, as we talked about, start businesses, that is made for the transactional lawyer. Yeah. So now we have high-quality, high-satisfaction volunteer experiences for the transactional lawyer as well. It provides an opportunity to younger lawyers too. You know, less and less cases get tried and more and more younger lawyers spend the first 10 years of their career and they'll, you know, they'll never get to take part in a trial and they might not be taking many depots. I mean, it depends where you're at. John had me trying a case the week I got licensed. But, but for so many younger lawyers, especially at like bigger firms, they don't get that experience. And it's an opportunity where they can not only be doing a good thing and helping people get some courtroom experience on the side that they're not going to get at their regular job. Right. I have the oath of licensing in front of me from Missouri, and it says that I will practice law to the best of my knowledge and ability and with consideration for the defenseless and oppressed. That's in the oath that we all take. And how many of us do that? Not enough. Let's say I realize, oh, I do have not only, you know, an urge to do this, but there's a duty to do this in order to be a practicing attorney. And I want to call you folks up and say, I'd like to make myself available, but I'm a little nervous and it's an eviction case. And I've never handled one. Do you have like informational packets to help lawyers get up to speed faster or, or any like, online training, law. something like that? We do. We have some recorded trainings from one of our housing law attorneys who's been doing housing law for over 30 years. She's an excellent trainer. So that recorded training is available. She probably would even be available by phone to speak to someone and walk them through that. I was chatting with our volunteer lawyers program director prior to coming for the podcast, and he was saying we had a really good outcome with a younger attorney who took a landlord-tenant case right around the holiday season. And that attorney took that case on. I don't think that was an area that this attorney had practiced in before, but you know, got up to speed and helped our client from becoming homeless. So, I mean, those are wins all around for our clients, for younger attorneys who want to get trial experience, like you mentioned. And we've had some volunteer attorneys that have been with us on a longer term basis. We have one volunteer attorney who has a solo practice, who's expended a large amount of time helping us serve clients with unemployment matters, representing them on appeals, and then also training some of our staff internally on unemployment matters in the midst of the pandemic when there was uh, the pandemic unemployment assistance benefits and people having challenges accessing those benefits. The need is so great that the army, if you will, of folks committed to doing this kind of work we band together and we work collectively. And so we have wonderful relationships with our law schools, with the clinic programs. And then interns in the summer, we have what, 50 or 60 interns working with us. And then during the school year, we have interns. All right. So very strong relationship with the law school institutions. We also work well with our brothers and sister public interest programs in our area. The ACLU, we co-counsel cases with them. We're all in this together. And shame, shame on any advocate 
in the public interest arena who starts turfing on things because the problem is too great. Our clients, the population we serve, they cannot afford that kind of back and forth, you know, we strive very hard for that not to happen. And I think we all in the public interest community, advocacy community, prescribe to that because our clients deserve nothing best. Those in need deserve nothing best than, than all we have. And when resources are limited, we work together and we do that. We co-counsel things you know, all the time. Also, we co-counsel with the private bar. You know, We co-counseled with the Stinson Law Firm and the Hush Blackwell Law Firm to make sure that Medicaid expansion in the state of Missouri happened. It was Legal Services of Eastern Missouri and the Stinson Law Firm and the Hush Blackwell Law Firm co-counseling the case to make sure that 275,000 people in the state of Missouri who would be shut out of critical health care if Medicaid expansion didn't happen. So can I ask you about funding, Dan and Karen? Where does your funding it's not come enough. from? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the point. It's what I want to ask you about it. Where does it come from? I mean, I know we put on our seminar for the benefit of legal services, but that probably doesn't make much of a dent. So everybody listening should come to our seminar because uh, all the funds go to legal services of Eastern Missouri. <laughs> the seminar is great. Yeah, I know we appreciate it. We definitely appreciate but it. What other kinds of things can lawyers do to try to help? One of our primary areas of funding is through the Legal Services Corporation, which funds civil legal aid organizations like ours around the country. And that makes up about 27%, 30%. federal funding. Federal funding, yeah. LSC gets appropriations from Congress, and in turn, they fund grantees like ours around the country. And then we also have funding from um, private foundations where we've applied for grants, private donors. Special events. Justice for All Ball, which uh, for years has been sort of like lawyer prom. There are funds known as the IOLTA, the Interest on Lawyers Trust Accounts, where interest on money that lawyers are holding for clients goes to legal aid programs. There are a lot of different sources. Uh, Cypre, which is uh, class action, if there is money left over. After the money is distributed to the class, we have to petition for it or the plaintiff or the defendants. That's really critical. And that you were talking about what something lawyers can do. All right. If you are an attorney on a class action case, there's a good chance there could be Cypre, meaning money left over. Right. And if you can put in that order that it should go to legal services, that's immeasurable. And that has helped us in ways you cannot imagine. But the problem is there aren't enough resources. You know, a lot of times it's about priorities. Our former head of the Legal Services Corporation, the executive director, had an interesting line a couple of years ago that resonated. He said, our budget nationwide right now is about $465 million. That's nationwide, okay, to handle all the needs. 465 million. And as he pointed out, people spend that amount of money each year for Halloween costumes for their pets. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there is more money spent each year on Halloween costumes for pets than there is for civil 
legal assistance in the country. Could I ask you this? If you could magically write yourself a check for whatever else you need to expand your staff, hire more attorneys to cover what you perceive as the actual need for attorneys, how much more would you take that you could say, we could use that? You mean nationwide, Eric? Or um, you mean for legal services of Eastern Missouri? How yeah. about just, just here in St. Louis? That's a good question. I mean, I imagine the answer will always be more. Yeah, because you can help more people. Well, you know, I mean, we have about a eight to nine million dollar budget. Okay, five times that, five times that would go a long way. Karen, if I could go back to the intake, I'm doing this as not just a feel good exercise, but also to illustrate the desperation. You get people who are calling you, and you're their last hope. Right. What have you heard from clients when you or your staff members say? yes, we will appoint you an attorney. What's the typical reaction to that? Oh, well, generally it's a form of relief, but I have to say the caveat is that, you know, we open their case and we tell them, you know, if it's going to the volunteer lawyers program, we always have to say that's dependent on finding an attorney that's available and hopefully we can place your case. If it's going to one of our programs, there is relief. And then there's the anticipation of seeing what's going to happen next because for every case that we take, we do also have to do a bit of triage because of the resource limitations. So some people that we take on their case, they are going to get full representation. But for others, because of limitations on resources, sometimes the most we can do is provide counsel and advice. And kind of in the middle of that, not to get too technical with our terminology, we can do like a brief service. We'll contact a third party on their behalf to try to resolve their legal issue. In reality, that's what we're looking at is triage, but most people are relieved. A lot of people are relieved just to get an acknowledgement. They've called for help. We talk to them. Sometimes even when we can help a person, they're just grateful for the information that we can give or the resources that we can give because sometimes people just don't know where to go. You know, the people we represent, one of the things that we do for them, which is so basic, but that many of them have never had in their life, someone to listen to them, you know? When you're low income, low opportunity, and you know, you're always used to, you know, people saying no, someone sitting down and saying, tell us your problem, tell me what you're facing, and listening and offering then guidance, but also support is invaluable. This might also be an opportunity to mention that what we're very proud of at Legal Service of Eastern Missouri is we do holistic advocacy, meaning we have lawyers on staff, and we also have social workers on staff who work in a complementary fashion with the lawyers to help our clients get all the advocacy they need. It's one thing to represent someone to keep them from being evicted, but then they're going to need a social worker to help them get the resources, maybe, to keep the lights on. Or if they do have to move to find another place, or if they are survivors of domestic violence, to have a safety plan so they can survive. Tell us more about that. What can a social worker do for someone, a victim of domestic violence? Now they're maybe in a shelter and they're wondering, how am I going to put my life together again? And a lawyer really is not the key piece at that point. Right. So that social worker can provide that support for that client, build a relationship with them to do the safety planning, as Dan mentioned, help them plan out how to go forward. Many times we're dealing with, you know, 
women who are survivors of domestic violence as well as men, and they have minor children. So they might be assisting that client in looking at how does my child's education continue in the midst of, you know, a tumultuous situation? How can I get supplies I need to like move out on my own to someplace that's safe? Where can I go in terms of an apartment? How can I apply for what's called a safe at home address, which is a program through the Missouri Secretary of State's office. So they have a safe mailing address for important documents. That social worker also is going to give that client support in understanding how the legal system is going to work because they can spend more time one-on-one with that client versus the attorney, giving them reassurance about the steps of the process. That's a lot of what our social workers do is provide that support, but also connect our clients with crucial basic necessities. It can be furniture. It could be making sure if they move into an apartment, their kids have mattresses for their beds, food, diapers, cleaning supplies. So they really get in and they do the really necessary work to support our clients throughout the legal process. One of the things we're really proud of is that we partner with over 150 social service agencies in our 21 county service area. And that's really critical. That's part of holistic advocacy is being of your community. You know, when the lawyers are separate from the issues, you know, from those who are providing all these different services, that doesn't work as well. It's when you're connected, when you're partnering, that is the most effective advocacy that can be done. Thank you, Karen and Dan, for being with us for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it so far. Yeah, it's been fun. Great. We'll be back with another episode to continue this topic. And get into more detail, I think, about the specific areas that legal services addresses. Absolutely. That's what we're doing on part two. So thank you again. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.